0: What's good? Welcome back to Black and Published, a podcast for writers, poets, playwrights, and storytellers of all kinds. I'm your host, Nikisha Elise Williams, an award winning author, two time Emmy Award winning producer, publisher, all that good stuff. Today, we're talking with Angela Jackson Brown, author of When Stars Rain Down, out right now from HarperCollins. Angela Jackson Brown is an award-winning writer, poet, and playwright who teaches creative writing and English at Ball State University in Muncie, Indiana. She is a graduate of the Spaulding Low Residency MFA program in creative writing. She is also the author of the novel Drinking from a Bitter Cup and the poetry collection House Repairs, which recently won the 2021 Poetry Award from the Alabama Library Association. In this episode, we discuss why it's okay not to want overnight success, fame, and fortune as a writer, the role of God and the church in Black liberation, and the importance of telling all stories, even painful ones, so that the world never forgets. Black and published family, Please welcome Angela to the show. So, Angela, thank you for joining me today on Black and Publish. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you for the invitation. I'm happy to be here. No problem. So, I finished your book uh, this morning. Um, but before we get to when stars Rain down, I always like to start the podcast by asking, when did you know that you were a writer? That's
1: that's such a good question. I, I think I I think in some ways I always knew that I love words and I love the magic that words created on a page. So even when I was a young girl, barely able to read it all, I would take crayons and Scribble in the books. I know that's not a great thing to confess to, but I would want to add my own part to the stories. So, whatever the story was, I felt like I needed to add my own little, I guess, flavor to it. And then, of course, I had a very supportive dad. And from the very beginning, when he learned that writing and reading was important to me, he made it important to him too. So, I've always had the support and the encouragement.
0: So where did that journey take you from writing in the books with crayons and being supported by your dad? How did you get to the point where you decided that writing was something that you wanted to do for your career?
1: I wanted, I think around the time I was in high school, I really wanted at that point to pursue writing as a career. I talked to my dad about going to college and studying creative writing uh unfortunately, my depression era dad did not see the value in it at that point. He said, You need a degree in something that's going to get you a job. I don't know that getting a degree in creative writing is going to do that. So I um uh, I listened to him and I got a, a degree in business and, and marketing, which served me well, but I still longed for those English courses and those creative writing courses. So I said to him, I said, Daddy, I got I got the first degree for you, but the next degrees are for me. And he said, you know what, if that's what if you feel that passionate about it, then go for it. So. That's kind of how things started.
0: So you got the degree in business. How long was it before you returned to get your MFA? Oh, I did not
1: go back for the MFA until it was actually the year of my 40th birthday. I'd always been writing. I didn't really try to publish that seriously. I think, it, well, I think I was intimidated in a lot of ways by the idea of trying to live up to the standards in my head. You know, I would I would write a story and I would think to myself, this is not as good as anything that I've ever read in a book. So I've got to keep working on this. And so finally, when I turned 40, it was like, okay, you've got to either, in the words of Shawshank Redemption, you got to get busy living or get busy dying. And in my case, it was get busy writing and doing it in a serious way. So I I enrolled in uh, the Spalding Low Residency Program in Louisville, Kentucky, and I never looked back.
0: And so what did that i guess turning point for you at 40 and enrolling in the MFA program at in, in Kentucky what did that do for you and for and for your writing and the craft
1: enrolling in that program was everything it it validated everything that i thought about myself you know when you're because i was a mother at a very young age i got married young and i i wasn't surrounded by an arts community i wasn't surrounded by people who had like-minded goals i was pretty good as far as the writing was concerned but it was the self-esteem that i was very much lacking in and, and i think that program sort of helped to build me back up because by that time my dad had passed away and my husband my second husband was very he is very supportive but it wasn't the same as hearing it from other writers you know It's one thing for the person that you loved to to tell you this is good, but it was something altogether different for, you know, my colleagues in the writing field and my teachers and various ones to say, yes, you do have some talent.
0: So did that validation then give you confidence to go on and write your first book?
1: It absolutely gave me that confidence. I I started working on uh, Drinking from a Bitter Cup, my first book, uh, before I started uh, at Spaulding. But I was still struggling with the whole idea of what that book was supposed to look like. I wrote it and rewrote it probably half a dozen times. But then when I got to the Spaulding program, I had a mentor, Kenny Cook, and he said to me, this, this book needs to be in the voice of the little girl. And I'm thinking to myself, sir, you're not going to make me write this book yet again. So thanks, but no thanks. So I moved on to a totally different project. But after I graduated, I, I came back to his notes and I really thought about the things that he had said to me. And, and, and I realized, you know, you, you spent all this money on this degree. You believed in the people who taught you there. So listen to him. And I said to myself, I'm going to give it a try. And then if this doesn't work, then I'm done with this book. I'll move on to some other project. But everything aligned properly. The story came out of me the way that it really was supposed to. And I have to give credit to Kenny for that.
0: What do you think is the importance of having those mentors who will not only validate you when your work is good, but then also? give you a note and a critique that to to make you better even if you don't want to hear it.
1: Writing is such a it, we do it in isolation. So much of it we spend time alone that it's often easy for us to lose sight of the project and, and what the goals of the project should be. And so if you can find, I think if we can find someone whose voice we value and, and that means I, I valued his work. I read his work and I thought to myself, this is the type of writer I want to be. And I felt that way out about a lot of my mentors. So trust, I think, in having someone who's not a yes person, because I have a lot of friends and family who will read my work and say, oh, this is wonderful. This is beautiful. And. I know they're doing the best that they can because they want me to feel good about myself. But that's not what you need when you are really trying to get into this industry and you want to be successful. You need people to say, "No, girl, go back and try again. This is not working."
0: Mm, let's talk about that. That want to be successful. Did you feel successful after publishing uh, "Drinking from a Bitter Cup"?
1: You know, I really did feel successful because. I was not writing for awards. I wasn't writing for the number of sales, but Mm. I was writing to be able to achieve a goal, which was to write the best book that I could and to be published. Those were my two main goals. So everything else that happened after that, I knew was going to be gravy. And also, I was I was working uh, in marketing and PR at a nonprofit in Louisville. I was doing okay. So it, I wasn't writing with the idea that that's how I was going to pay my rent or that was how I was going to put my child through school. Those things were taken care of through my my job and my husband's job. So it gave me, I think, a lot of freedom to take risk and not worry so much about you know, how it got, it got received by other people.
0: That sounds like a beautiful place to be, to not have the pressure of having to meet someone else's benchmark of success to, to consider yourself and your work successful. So how did you publish drinking from a bitter cup? What was that process taking it from the MFA where you had to gotten a note to, to do it again in a different uh, point of view? to it actually being in your hand?
1: So this is where I, I tell young writers, even if you don't get a degree a, a degree outside of English or creative writing, take a class in marketing, take a class in public relations because I, I learned quickly that I had to wear multiple hats. One of the hats was the writer who was neurotic who loved every word on the page. But then the other hat was someone who was a business-minded individual who says, who said to herself, I have to treat this like a business. I can't just send my manuscript to every agent or every publisher because my favorite author happens to have that person as their publisher or agent. I really meticulously looked through the list of, of publishing houses I knew that I wanted to, I knew I I didn't necessarily want an agent right away. I don't know why, just it wasn't something that I felt that I needed. I felt like I needed to immerse myself in the project and I needed to do it with a smaller publishing house. Mm. So I just, we researched small publishing houses and Widow Publishing was one of the houses that I found. And I submitted to them and probably within... A matter of a month or two, we had a contract and I was like I said, I made sure that who I sent my projects to were people that I thought would be interested in the project. I think sometimes we waste so much energy uh, sending our work to people that it's not appropriate for. Uh, When I first started writing, I was writing my little rural stories about Alabama and I was sending it off to the New Yorker. Because that was where famous people were published. And so I'm, I'm like, so I need to send my work to the New Yorker. And it wasn't until probably later on in graduate school where I realized the New Yorker, at least right now, is not for you. You read this every month. Do you ever see them publish anything that remotely sounds like what you write? And yeah. my answer to myself was no. So I said, so move on, find, find start a relationship with with a with a journal or with a publishing house that actually seems receptive to the type of things that you write. And maybe the New Yorker will happen on down the line. But for right now, I was like, let's be realistic about who we're going for.
0: Oh, I think that is such a good piece of advice because I think for writers, especially when you, you don't go through a program like an MFA or you're just writing and you don't know how to get into the industry, all you see and all you hear are about the big names and the big houses and the big literary journals and magazines. So you don't know that there is a whole framework and patchwork of smaller presses and publishing houses and literary journals that are equally as important and to help you get your work out, but that don't get all the shine as a Penguin Random House or a Harper Collins or anything like that, because that's not what you hear every day. Go I mean,
1: oh, go ahead. I was no, going to say, ahead. well, so many authors, I think, are so swallowed up about the notion of, I need a big advance. I want to be able to retire with this book. I, you know, I want to be able to, and you think of all the things that you want this one book to, to accomplish for you without thinking about it in the long term. So I really did have, when I, after, drinking from a bitter cup, I really did in my mind have like a five, 10, 15, 20 year plan of Mm. where I wanted to see my career go. And so I wasn't in it for the short term. Uh, I really was thinking about in terms of, I want a career that has the longevity of the people I admire, like Alice Walker and Toni Morrison and Maya Angelou, people who um, really took their time and built up their career and they weren't interested in just having that one book and be done with it all.
0: Well, I feel like you're preaching to my soul. Cause I think that's where I was that I know that's where I was when I started my journey with my first book. I wanted an agent. I wanted a big publishing house. I wanted a big advance. I wanted to leave my job and, mm-hmm. and do all these things. And it's not that I didn't have the foresight to know, okay, I want to write other books too, but I wanted this one book to do all that and while that happens for some people, that's not everybody's story. And so I think it's so important to to show that you can get there over time. It doesn't always have to be instant. Absolutely. And I think we
1: and I know this sounds cliche, you know, that we appreciate it better or we appreciate it more when we have to when we have to pace ourselves. But I've seen a lot of young writers who had success with their first book and you didn't hear from them again. I knew I didn't want that. I wanted to, I would. I. I knew in my spirit that I would rather um, have a book where maybe I only have, you know, a very small print run and maybe no advance or very small advance. But that I could, I knew that I could build myself up to the place where I could have the kind of career that I was after. And it's slowly beginning to unfold now.
0: And as you say that, you um you had drinking from a bitter cup, which was you said widow press, and then you dabbled with the poetry collection, house repairs. And now you've got this big book coming, When Stars Rain Down, which will be out at the time of this the time that this interview airs, on Thomas Nelson, which is the imprint of Harper Collins. What was the journey like step by step getting you to one of these big five publishing houses? And wow. the very mainstream one. It was the journey. <laughs> I, after drinking from a bitter
1: cup, it did well. It, it, I mean, obviously it was with a small publishing house. So I didn't have the type of reach that I do now with what stars ring down, but of the reach that I did have, it was very um, successful. And my husband and I, we did, I, I say it was the Chitlin circuit of writing. We got books. We put them in the car. And we got on I-65 and we'd stop at cities and we would go into bookstores and we would say, Do you mind if we leave you a couple of copies of these? And we and we did I did reading. Sometimes there was no one but my husband and myself there. And I would loud talk until I could get someone to come over because I knew if I could just get you to hear me, if I could just get you to hear me, then I'm going to, I'm going to encourage you enough that you're going to want to buy this book. And if you buy this book and read this book, you're going to tell two or three friends. And so we just did old school, get you know, get on the pavement and go. And so after that was, you know, after that run, we did that for about nine months. And during that nine months, I was writing when stars ring down. So we would be at a hotel and I would write. You know, my husband would be sound asleep and I was up writing. Or we would stay on the couch of a relative or a friend as we're going to the next city and I would write. And so by the time we finished touring with um drinking from a bitter cup, I had already written when Stars Rang Down. And at that point, I went after my agent. And my agent, Alice Spielberg, was someone that I knew of. She had a very lucrative career in. New York, but then she came back home to Louisville, Kentucky. And so with the way that the world is now, you don't have to live in New York to, to carry on as a New York agent. And so I kept her on my, on my radar and I tell my students, I did what you all do. I started stalking her, but in a, in a nice kind of way, I would be, if she was on Twitter. I would like a tweet. You know, if she was on Instagram, I'd like a post and I'd make a comment. And then when I started following her website where she would list the places that she was going to be, I would go to that writer's conference and I would make sure I would go by and I would just speak to her. I didn't necessarily try to pitch a book at that point, but just I thought to myself, if you can make a memory with her so that when you do have a project ready to submit, then she's going to remember you. And when the book was done, she was doing a pitch event in Lexington, Kentucky, And I had 15 minutes. I went in, and I had rehearsed that thing down, you know, to to a science. I pitched the book, and that was 11 o'clock in the morning. And by three o'clock that afternoon, she called and said, "I want to represent you."
0: Oh, that is awesome! Like you built the relationship with the agent that you wanted, and without wanting anything from her immediately. And I think that's so key because. Social media makes it seem like we know everybody and we can talk to everybody and approach everybody and say, hey, here's my stuff. Here's my stuff. Here's my stuff. Here's my stuff. But you don't have a rapport with them. And so I love that you you, and I think that's something that you learn in business, too, that you have to network and go around and make those one, two, three touches and leave an impression and leave a memory so that when you do have a favor to ask or even a pitch to propose, that they already have some cognizance of you so that they can be more receptive to it. I think that is so critical. But I've been stalking you in a nice way on social media, and I saw that you posted that once you signed with your agent, she told you to rewrite the book.
1: Ooh, that was a, That was the other part of the story that I think is important for everyone to know who wants to get on this journey. Just because you have an agent, and just because you have an agent who has made some major moves, that does not mean they're going to be able to sell your book. Those are still like getting those book deals, it's still like finding a unicorn in your backyard. You know, it can happen, but you know, the it so I thought, and again, here's when you're naive and you don't know the business as well as you should. I thought I have an agent, I'm good now. But she, um, she, we did the pitch for the the first incarnation of When Stars Rain Down, and we got lots of positive feedback. Love it. Just don't know how to market it. It's a good book. I like the characters, but I just, you know, and all of this great feedback that got canceled out with the but. So we did this for about a period of three months and Alice said, we need to pull this manuscript back because what I don't want to do is to saturate the market with this book and we get tons of no's and then we can't go back. Mm. So she said, if you're okay with that, we're going to pull this manuscript back and we're going to think about it a little more. And after about another month or two, she came back to me and she said, Angela, there's something I need to suggest to you. And I you can say no. And if you say no, I'll do whatever you want me to do. But I think what I'm about to say is what we need to do. And she said, because at the time the book was written in the voice of four four characters, she said, I think the strongest character is Opal. And I think you need to rewrite the book in just her voice. Mm. And uh, Ooh. At the time I was going through, my mother had stage four cancer. I had just been diagnose, diagnosed with auto, various autoimmune diseases. Uh, I just I, My future was so uncertain in my mind. I had already said to myself, if, if she can just sell this book, then maybe my family will have something, like mm-hmm. a little nest egg. And so now you're telling me that the nest egg is not even a possibility, that I've got to spend another nine, 10, 12, however many months rewriting this thing. So I said, I need to think about this. And I thought about it for about six months. Mm. Uh, and the good thing about Alice is that she never pushed. She would check in on me every week or so. How are you doing? She never said, how was the book? She say she would say, how are you? And we just talked. And then uh, my mother did pass away. And the summer afterwards, I said to her, I think I'm ready. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm going to finish it, but I'm willing to try. And she said, let's do it then. And I started working on it. And it took me about two years to rewrite it. And there were so many times along that process that I was ready to give up. And when I finally did finish it and I gave it to her, I said, we'll take it through one more cycle. And if no one wants it, I-, I can't do it again. I can't I can't live in this world anymore with these characters.
0: Wow. So what year did you first um, Did Alice first signed you with when stars Rain down? She and I signed
1: together the year after. So it would have been 20. It would have been 2016
0: when we signed together. Okay, so from twenty sixteen, and it was how long before and then you, your 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 diagnosis and the rewrite and then the two years of that. So when did you finish the the draft that went out again? It
1: we didn't have a completed draft until it would have been twenty nineteen, the summer of twenty nineteen. Yeah. Wow.
0: And from that completed draft, how long? Had it been out in the in the pitching circuit to to editors before it was acquired? So she
1: started shopping it around in late August. Yeah, because I had just started back to. Yeah, I just started back teaching at Ball State and I was teaching a couple of creative writing classes. And so I told my students, I said, y'all are going to go on this journey with me. I want you to see the good, the bad and the indifferent. I said I don't know where it's going. I might be in this classroom crying at any given <laughs> time. Y'all just cry with me or just say it's going to be okay, professor. So as things were happening in real time, I would, I would let them know and it just so happened um and that would have been by around November. So it was right before Thanksgiving. And I was in one of my classes and The phone rang. I had my, of course, I had it off and I looked and saw it was Alice. And I had said to her, I don't want to know, it. don't, don't, please don't email me and let me know things unless it's good. You can just tell me, you know, send me a a, a monthly email saying, you know, we've tried and and these publishers said, no. I said, so if you call me or, or, or email me outside of that cycle, it needs to be good news. So she called. And I'm thinking, I'll just deal with this after I'm done teaching. But then she called again. And then I got a text saying, you need to to call. And so I told my students, I said, well, I'm going to go out in the hallway. And I go out in the hallway and she says, we got an offer uh, from Thomas Nelson. They want the book. And I'm in the hallway doing, you know, almost a Holy Ghost dance (laughs) dance. And I go back at the room and I i was, you know how when it starts off as a joyful sound and it just becomes a sob and my mm. students, bless their hearts, they were so sweet. They said, are you okay? And I was like, I just got offered a book deal. And then about a week later, another publisher expressed interest in it. So but do we have first, a bidding war? Well, here's the thing. So she 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 lets them know who they would be up against, and they said never. No, we're good. Okay, because because you know they knew they wouldn't be able to you know go toe to toe with because they were a mid-sized press and they knew they wouldn't be able to go toe to toe with a larger size press. But I said to her that to go back, I said go back to them and tell them that that's not all that I'm looking for because I literally felt at that point in my life. I need to fill a rapport with the people that I'm going to work with. It's mm. not about who can give me the most money. It's not about you know who has the biggest marketing budget. It's do I feel a connection to these folks? Do they respond to my work the way that I need them to? because I knew i'm I'm operating in a predominantly white industry, and I knew that my characters were from rural Georgia. They were not the kind of folks that would end up in the New Yorker or some major publication. So I knew I needed more than just somebody who could give me a nice size advance. I needed someone who loved these characters. And so I asked her if we could, you know, meet with people, representatives from the different houses. And when we met with, uh, we met with Thomas Nelson first and it was, that's all I needed because I had the whole, the entire editorial team And the marketing team and the sales team were all on that call and they were all showing excitement about this book. And they all indicated that they had read the book, which I knew was, you know, it's not something that you always get. You know, oftentimes they'll read the first chapter or the first few pages and they'll make a decision. But they were invested in this project. And I said, that's who I want to go with.
0: So I have to ask, was the advance good?
1: The advance was good. (laughs) The advance was good. It allowed me to go from teaching full-time to teaching part-time. It allowed me to be able to focus on what is important to me, the, the writing and the teaching. But I knew I couldn't do them successfully the way that I needed to. I needed to be able to give my, my students a hundred percent when I was with them. And I needed to give the writing a hundred percent when I was with it. And I couldn't do both. So yeah, it, it has afforded me the opportunity to, to go to part-time.
0: And is it not a three book deal? Well, it, it, it I feel like I read that in the social somewhere, like this is like, it looking like a three book deal that we got, that you got.
1: Initially it was a two book deal. But because of the success, the, just the pre-sales and the pre-press that When Stars Rain Down has received, they are, we are now in the midst of talking about um, at least an, a third, possibly a fourth book with them.
0: Hey, I love to see Black women win. <laughs> okay, so now we can talk about When Stars Rain Down. I, I told you I finished the book this morning. I think I cried the last 60 pages, oh. um, I was like, no, she didn't do this to me. All right, so this is the description of when stars rained down. The summer of 1936 in Parsons, Georgia, is unseasonably hot, and Open Pruitt can sense a nameless storm coming. She hopes this foreboding feeling won't overshadow her upcoming 18th birthday or the annual Founders Day celebration in just a few weeks. As hard as she works in the home of the widow, Miss Peggy, Opal enjoys having something to look forward to. But when the Ku Klux Klan descends on Opal's neighborhood of color town, the tight knit community is shaken in every way. Parsons residents, both black and white, are forced to acknowledge the unspoken codes of conduct in their post reconstruction era town. To complicate matters, Opal finds herself torn between two unexpected romantic interests, awakening many new emotions. She never thought that becoming a woman would bring with it such complicated decisions about what type of person she wants to be. And when stars rain down, Angela Jackson Brown introduces us to a small southern town grappling with haunting questions still relevant today, and to a young woman whose search for meaning resonates across the ages. Angela, take it away. Okay,
1: so I'm going to read a scene that takes place on the night that the clan comes to Town, and that's a part of Parsons, Georgia, where all of the Black people live. This scene is involves Granny and the main character, Opal. They out there, baby, she said in my ear, although I could hear the hooping and yelling, and I could see the flickering flames outside of the window. My heart quickened, and I reached down beside my chair, and I felt around for my purse. Once I felt it, I placed it on my lap. I couldn't imagine shooting anybody, but if it came down to it, I knew I would do what I had to do to protect me and Granny. Granny reached over and took my hand as we listened to the loud crashing sounds from out in our backyard. Then we heard Granny's chicken squawking in such a loud and frightening way. I didn't even want to think about what was happening. Hey, in there, y'all niggers, come on out, a loud male voice shouted. We about to make y'all some fried chicken. We know how much you darkies love yourselves some fried chicken. No, Granny whimpered, not my chickens. Granny crept over to the window. She made a painful sound, but thankfully she stayed put. What's going on, Granny? I whispered. She didn't answer. I crept over to the window where Granny knelt, and I was horrified by what I saw. Those bloodthirsty demons were busy dousing Granny's chicken coop with some type of liquid that had to be kerosene or gasoline. I wanted to run out and stop them. Those chickens were like family to Granny. Granny would sit for hours talking to them chickens and babying them. It almost broke her heart for us to use their eggs. When one of those chickens died, she would think it, you would think it was a friend of Granny's. She would laugh at herself for being so silly about her baby birds. but They meant the world to her. I watched in horror as one of the men tossed a fire stick into the coop. The flames leapt into the sky and they all yelled and cheered like they were witnessing the winning run at a baseball game. The sounds those chickens made as they died in the blaze set by those clansmen will live in my heart forever. Seemed like their screeching would never stop. I wrapped my arms around Granny. Her entire body shook with grief, but she kept quiet. I prayed they would leave, that they would, but it seemed like it only got louder. Then we heard a loud knock. I wondered where Uncle Little Bud and the other men were. I wondered if they were out there watching this happen. I tried not to think about the fact that in that moment, I didn't believe anybody had the power to protect us, including God, who was painfully silent right then.
0: Hmm. So you're reading that chapter, confronts the audience here with, you know, the... Some of the terrible atrocities that happened throughout this book because of it being set in the Jim Crow south of Parsons, Georgia. When I opened the book, I noticed that there was the disclaimer about the use of the word nigger. And I wanted to know why did you feel the need to warn the reader about the power and the weaponization of that word?
1: Okay, I'm going to be totally transparent here. (laughs) It was not my idea. It was it was uh, it was a suggestion by my publisher. They they were very concerned about how someone might take that, particularly that chapter, but but some other chapters where some other racist incidents happened. And I think because we live in a time where people are so afraid of cancel culture. And are so afraid of people being offended, even in situations where instead of being offended, they should feel enlightened, that they felt the safest bet would be for me to write that letter. And I pushed back. I was not interested in doing it. I felt like, no, people need to sit in it. And if it offends them, good. That. You should you should be offended. You and, but more than that, you should be able to see the parallels in what was happening in 1936, what's happening right now in the year 2021. But I acquiesced because well, for a few reasons. Not one is that I didn't want to become that difficult writer. You know, I didn't want to be the one that was you know, and I pushed back on other things. So I felt like, you know what, girl, you got to, you got to claim your, your battles. And if there's some random reader out there who needs that letter, just write the letter. And my agent said the same thing. She says, you know, again, she says, I will fight on that hill with you, but is this really the hill that you, you know, you want to die on, you know, over something that, it's going to take you all 5 to 10 minutes to write. So just write the letter. Um <laughs> so I did. I just I just wrote the letter. And and I will have to confess when when the book arrived and I saw it it, it did bring up those feelings. Um because I the, my publisher is very supportive. And if I had said to them I can't stand by this letter thing. I, I can't do it. They would have supported me on that. Um, but but so, but I, I wanted to be receptive and I wanted to hear their concerns. And I think there there probably was some legitimacy because I've already had a, uh, a reader uh, reach out to me and said she was grateful that that letter was there to kind of contextualize things. So I'm like, OK, well, if that's what you needed and it helped you, then I guess it was worth it.
0: I read it and I was like, eh, whatever, <laughs> but I'm black and I'm grown. Um, but reading the book, I was like, okay, I get the why the letter is there. Cause it's like historical YA fiction, which means it could very much have a younger audience or um, a high school student audience and be in those high school student um, literary classrooms. Like I remember I was a sophomore in high school. We read native son. And I will never forget how triggered I felt when those one white girl in our classroom she raised her hand and she asked the question, Do you think Richard Wright named the character bigger because it rhymes with nigger? And I was like, And you said the word out loud, and we in a black heist. I had all the feelings. So I will never forget. I never forgot that feeling, and I still remember it. So, like seeing the letter at the beginning of the book, and I was like, Okay, I can see if this goes in the classroom, it helps to contextualize the discussion. And, you know, let people know, OK, this is what we're talking about and how to be respectful about it.
1: Yeah. And, you know, and this is the other thing about the industry that I think we all have to you know, be aware of is the fact that once we sign on with a publisher, it's no longer just about our vision, that it truly becomes something collaborative. and as an author, you always have the right to push back. You know, if there's something you're being asked to do that you feel passionate that this is not right, then absolutely. Now, if they had said for me to take out the N-word references, then yeah, we would have been battling till now because <clears throat> there's no way I could have a, cl- a clan scene and they were calling us the N-word. That just didn't happen. So again, I felt like if it was a choice between uh, whitewashing my book and taking out references that might be offensive to some folk, I would rather just write the letter. No, I would rather write the letter.
0: And in, in telling this story that is set in 1936, and it even says it in the description, it's so much parallels everything that We see today that we're talking about today and even some of the same things like you had, there were twice where you had the line, but this ain't slavery times. The first time Cedric says it to his father, Reverend Perkins, and then another time uh, Uncle Little Bud says it to Granny. And I'm like, we still say that today, like this ain't slavery times, this ain't uh, Jim Crow, it's not this, it's not that, it's not the third. And it made me think of that MLK quote, you know, the arc of moral history is long, but it bends toward justice. And I feel like, but does it though?
1: <laughs> you know, when I was doing the revisions on this manuscript, we were in the throes of, you know, an election season in the midst of COVID-19. No clear idea of where our future was going to go. And it was it was all so... Surreal, it was also deja vu almost in every scene. I thought to myself, This could be happening right now. This is happening right now. And how sad that, as far as we have come, we are still this far away from equality and justice, you know, that we're battling some of the same things that we were battling when opal was a girl how sad is that
0: yeah there was another line on page 65 where i forget who says it but it's it say we are always the hunted never the hunter and i was like whoo they, they hit me and so i wondered you know what do you say to people who say you know we don't want to hear any more stories about slavery or we don't want to hear any more stories about jim crow and segregation and how hard it was and how we were oppressed and all of these things. Like, what is your, what is your response to that? Because this is very much steeped in that time period.
1: I've had this conversation with a number of, of, of writers who look like me. That's probably the thing that feels the most hurtful. You know, when writers, other writers of your um, ethnicity come to you with that notion of it's time for us to move on. It's time to let those stories go. But when have we ever heard other cultures say that same thing to each other? Like, how many books do we have about the Holocaust? And we've never heard Jewish writers that I know of. Maybe they do in their own intimate circles, but I've never heard it vocalized. Why don't you stop writing about that subject? Why don't you let it go? Well, my thoughts are, I'm not going to let it. I will let it go when the ancestors stop speaking to me, when they stop coming to me with these stories, then I will let it go. But there's too much about our story that has not been written. There's too much about our story that has been pushed aside and not allowed to be at the forefront. And I guess what I think is there's room for all of our voices. That's the other problem with the publishing industry is that oftentimes because there's so few of us represented in high places, there's only one or two of us allowed to succeed at any given time. So, there, so the infighting starts. You know, If we had the type of representation that we needed, I'm beginning to see it happen more and more where you can write about contemporary Black stories. I can write about historical Black fiction, and those books can all sit in harmony with each other. And there doesn't have to be a one voice at a time. We all can speak our truths, whether it's from point of past or from the point of right now.
0: I can definitely see that in hearing you say that it made me think that like if someone has read Angie Thomas's The Hate You Give, And then they come and read When Stars Rain Down. You can see a through line from your story set in 1936 and her story set in 2015, 2016, 2017, something like that. And I think that that point about, you know, all of our stories deserve to be told is is, is, is one way that we can overcome repeating the history that we keep seeing played out in the news before that then inspires the literature about it. But as much as race is a part of this book, there's also religion. There's a lot of religion. And I was fine with it, but I was like, oh, we got to talk about the church. (laughs) (laughs) How has religion and the church, the Black church specifically, because there's a specific type of church you write about, influenced who you are as a person and your work?
1: Well, I grew up in the rural South where, you know, church was life you know every day of the week there was something related to church that i was involved in and it in some ways it shaped me in a positive way but there are other things about the church that did irreparable harm to me and i'm still in my 50s struggling with church hurt that happened decades ago and so my characters are representative of the world that they come from. And I don't ever try to force my religious beliefs onto them. I try to allow them to be whoever it is they are. But my hope is that as individuals saw the threat of Christianity run through the stories, that they also paid attention to Opal's questioning of certain things that others in her life believed uh, or of Mr. Tote outright saying, you are worshiping the master's religion. How are you going to turn around on one level and believe in God? And yet God just turned around and allowed the Klan to march through our community without any interference. So I I always want religion to be there, but I also want there to be those voices that challenge it. Because if it can't be challenged, then for me, then there's something problematic about it. Because if something is true, capital T true, it can withstand being pushed around a little bit and challenged. And that's what I hope uh, we all saw with these characters. And then the other character, Miss Slovenia, um, who was able to bring.
0: Wait, her- hold on. Hold, hold on. We're oh. going to get there in a second. Hold okay. on. Hold on. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay, let me slow down then. <laughs> We gonna to get to open questions and Miss Lavinia in a second, but um, you mentioned Mr. Tope, and I underline this on page eighty-seven. He says, "Well, no disrespect to your God, but He ain't done nothing to fix things so far." Which made me want to ask you, what is the role of God, white Jesus, in Black liberation? Ooh, mm.
1: if you're asking me personally. It's it's a it's a it's a challenge. I'd not I've not in, in my 52 years been able to reconcile how the master's tool was used against us.
0: Mm.
1: I I think of religion in terms of of how it was given to me. When I was born, my parents' faith was waiting there for me. I was never given the option to explore or to study other religions or to entertain the idea of not having a religion. So as I think back to our ancestors who were forced into a religion by virtue of just surviving that they had no choice, but to accept what was given to them. I've not seen a a substantive time where black people had the freedom to just explore what we thought and how we interpreted God or Mm -hmm. not. And so uh, it's, it's a very complicated, it's a very complicated topic for me because there's a part of me that envies my friends and relatives who have very strong convictions and beliefs about this is what God is. And this is what God looks like. I don't have those same convictions. Some days I do. Some days I absolutely wonder if we're all here by ourselves, just creating a mythology that makes us feel safe to sleep at night.
0: I wouldn't have thought that you would have said that your convictions weren't that strong because of how strong the voices of the convictions of the characters are for those that are saved and sanctified, <laughs> as as some folks like to say. But then also, I I recognize in the character of Miss Lavinia. Um, all of the, the the spirituality that she embodies and how it represents the syncretism of uh christianity with african traditional religions that we usually witness in the diaspora but outside of the united states is making more of a resurgence now and so her her practice of hoodoo uh of hoodoo and you know she starts with god but then if God's not answering this, the, the way she needs him to answer. Then she goes to another spirit, another ancestor, another deity, and she moves on about her life. And so it, again, it made me think of um, the, Bayou with uh, Moselle and then the character that Diane Carroll played. And then you also mentioned that she was born with a call over her face. And I interviewed another author Her interview comes out the week before yours, who wrote the novel Call Baby, who Mm -hmm. really goes deeply into this. So what is your relationship with spirituality in that sense and like everything coming from the earth is that we need and God created all these things and, you know, blending the two?
1: You know, I think if I were born in a different time in a different world, I think I would be far closer to Miss Lavinia than I probably would to uh, Granny. And her strong convictions. Granny, you couldn't tell Granny there was no heaven, that there was no God. You couldn't, there's nothing anyone could have said to convince her that God wasn't real. Um, I think my beliefs are a lot more fluid. And I think it's it helps me as a writer, because I don't think I could have written Miss Lovinia if I had the same beliefs as, say, Granny. If I were as strongly convicted of my beliefs as say, many of my relatives and friends, I probably would have been scared to write that character. I would have <laughs> felt like I was messing with God in some way. So, but it, by exploring her and exploring her the foundations of her religion and her beliefs, it really opened me up to the possibilities of, you know, I think about when, when my daddy used to, when he was teaching me how to drive, the one thing that he did was to show me at least four or five different ways to get back home.
0: Mm.
1: He would say, I don't want you to only know one way home, because what if that way gets blocked? He didn't say that, intending for that to be the foundations of my belief system. (laughs) But, you know, but sometimes out of a random conversation that has nothing to do with what they were talking about, you can then take that and run with it. And that has been what has sustained me is that what if there's many ways to get back home? And no one way is any better or worse than the other, because the end result is you're just trying to get home. And if I think about the end of my life and wherever that leads me, and I can get home, And even if I get home in a way that I'm the only one on that road, all that matters is that I get home. And so it allows me when I think about these various characters is that both Miss Lovina and Opal and Granny and everyone else in that book are perfectly right and reasonable with the things that they believe. Because at the end of the day, they all just trying to get back home.
0: And I think that's summed up when uh, Miss Lavinia says on page three thirty six, Opal, I listen to the spirits, and I listen to God. And to be honest, they are one and the same. When our ancestors were kidnapped and brought to this country, we lost our connection to God, But thankfully, God did not lose his connection to us.
1: Yeah,
0: I think that you you struck a nice balance between no matter what anyone believes, what God they worship, what name they call Him. Because there was even a part where Miss uh, Lavinia gave all the names that existed for God. No matter what what name you acknowledge him as, there's, there's always a path to get to God and to get to that higher being, no matter which way, which route you take. And no one is to say which route is right.
1: Right. I mean, when we all cry out, you know, I would like to believe that whatever language, whatever way in which we cry out, that there is a higher being up there that can hear that cry And it doesn't have to be the same specific name. It's like, you know, uh, my my son calls me mom, my my grandkids refer to me as Gigi. But I'm the same person. But I'll answer to all of that. My teachers call me. My students call me professor, you know, my my you know, so it's, it's still the same person. But I just answer to different names. And if I can do that, why couldn't God do that?
0: Another point in the book that struck me that I was very caught off guard by, well, I shouldn't say caught off guard, but it just made me think a little differently, is when Opal's going into Miss Lavinia's house and she's not, she, she has that unsettled feeling. And Miss Lavinia scolds her and says, never knowingly bring your pain or your suffering or your sadness or your anger into another's home. Always take off your burdens at the door and leave them with your lord. Where did that come from? Because I was like, "Well, damn! I got to check myself the next time I go to somebody's
1: house." <laughs> you know, I, I I can't take credit for that. I had um, there was a an elderly lady that would look after me when I was a little girl, and I don't remember a lot about Cousin Bert. Everybody called her Cousin Bert, but I could remember her saying that if someone would come to her house. And they were about to come into the house. She would say, what you carrying today? And, you know, as a child, I'm looking at their hands and they have nothing. She said, don't bring anything. Same thing. Don't bring anything into my house. That's going to defile my house. Mm. Now, if we need to talk. or if I need to pray for you, we'll do it outside so that when you come inside, you're bringing nothing but good energy. And she literally used the word energy, which tells me she was operating on a wavelength that went beyond the traditional Christian religion. And that, I think, is true for so many of the elders, because they were, they were able to, in their own way, take Christianity and, and, and deconstruct it and turn it into something that felt familiar to them.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: so I know now when cousin Bert was talking of when she would have her her crystals and she'd have her candles lit and she would do all of these ritualistic things that she was calling on not just the Christian God but the God of her ancestors and she probably didn't even know that's what she was doing I or have, maybe
0: she did know no I have two questions for that but first I'm just so How do you make sure that you enter new spaces with an unburdened heart?
1: Mm, It's being conscious. It's being conscious of where I am emotionally. It's being conscious of of the the energy of the other people. Because I think as writers, we're empaths. We have to be. We have to be able to feel emotions at a level that's much deeper than regular people, but there's a price that we pay for that. When I wrote the scene where the chickens were, were killed by the clan, I had to do some detoxing of myself, of my whole spirit for, for days afterwards, because that just stayed with me mm-hmm. in a way that I'd never had any other scene that I've written stay with me. And so I try to be mindful of all the things that can burden us down and try to consciously, you know, take those things off of my spirit and name them. What am I, what am I laying down here? You know, and naming it, whatever that thing happens to be, whether it's sadness or whether it's exhaustion or whatever, whatever it is, naming it and then putting it away so that it doesn't affect how I interact with other people.
0: And also, you mentioned a moment ago that, you know, the elders were able to take Christianity and deconstruct it in a way that felt familiar to them. And I even see that in Granny, because as much as she was saved, sanctified, and, and filled with the Holy Ghost on Sunday mornings, and we don't mess with no hoodoo, and I don't want you going by her house, as soon as Opal got hurt in that one scene, and she was at Miss Lavinia's house, and Granny was like, mm mm, you stay right here, you drink this tea. you think you can go home and so i was like so there's fluidity there even as rigid as someone can be in the practicing of christianity and and believing in the gospel and all of that when something hits a little too close to home you will do whatever you can even if it's outside the scope of god the bible the cross the trinity to make sure that your life is okay Absolutely, because
1: most of those elders during that time period, they practiced a version of medicine that wasn't the traditional methods, because mainly you you had to find alternate ways. You couldn't run to the hospital every time you got sick because there was no hospital to run to. There was no, I mean, in the community that they lived in, they happened to have a white doctor who was open to taking care of everyone. That wasn't the truth in most communities. So you had to learn how to take your medicines from the herbs and from the various berries and, and and leaves and vines that grew in your, you know, grew in your yard or grew in the woods behind your house. So I think those the, the medicine that Mrs. Lavine Ms. Lavinia was practicing probably felt more um more like something granny could relate to than even the white doctor in the town.
0: What do you want readers to get out of this book or any of your work?
1: I want, I want readers to, to feel a connection. I want them to feel a connection to these characters, even though these characters might not represent their reality or their history or their background. I want them to feel some type of, human connection, because if you can feel that human connection, then that's where we can begin to have the hard conversations. Uh, I have a student who, a white male, who's very conscious of being a white male. And oftentimes in conversations in class, he'll say, "Um, but this isn't my truth. And and I don't want to step on any toes by, you know, saying my, my point of view. I want people to be able to read this book and no matter what background you come to, you can feel empathy for these characters. Maybe you've never worried about the Klan marching in your community, but you've, you've loved something and you've, you've suffered loss. You know what it's like to feel uh, beaten down by a system or to beat down someone in a system. Maybe you can see yourself in one of these characters. And if you can do that, then that's where conversations start.
0: In being the the conduit to incite those conversations and also doing this work as a creative but also as a career, how do you see the future of the work that you are going to create? I know you said you had that 5, 10, 15, 20-year plan. We've got maybe a three, four-book deal. So there's at least three more books to come from Thomas Nelson, from Angela Jackson Brown. How do you see all of that?
1: I see it as as, as my legacy. I I'm mm. at this point, I'm I'm creating my legacy. I'm creating a timeline to be able to sh- show someone that I was here and that I tried to to make a difference and that I took the talent that was either given to me or that I just, maybe I worked very hard and and developed it. But either way, I used what I had to try to make this world a little better and hopefully leave a little bit of immortality uh, so that the next generation can bear witness to the fact that I
0: lived. All right you kind of answered my last question and I know you've been listening to the podcast so you know what my last question is but we're going to go to the speed round and then go back to the final question to see if we can't finagle a different kind of answer um what is your favorite book
1: color purple
0: Mm. who is your favorite author Maya Angelou What is your favorite time period in history?
1: Hmm. 1930s. Why? Because I think it was the beginning of something. I think we we had a generation that had not lived during slavery and who obviously experienced Jim Crow, but had witnessed a taste of freedom and they were willing to begin the fight that ultimately led to the point where the civil rights movement movement really became something that now has us where we are in the, in the future. So I just think that's a time period where so much was happening to push us where we are right now.
0: What is your favorite gospel hymn? you had a couple in there and I was like, now how's she gonna put these hymns in here and then expect the reader not to want to sing the song? <laughs> His eyes on the sparrow. And that's the one I'm talking about. I was like, this is a song that you you can't just read this. You gotta sing it. <laughs> um what is your favorite Bible verse or book? This is gonna seem
1: funny, but Jesus wept and the reason why is because as a little girl studying the Bible, Jesus just seemed unattainable. Like I'm like, I could never, this, this, this guy is perfect. But for Jesus to weep in a moment where he knew what was going to happen next, I'm going to raise Lazarus, but I'm still going to join in on the sadness that this family is experiencing from their loss. And I'm thinking that that's pretty good. Can't what if we all could just weep for one
0: another? I, I like the way you put that because thinking back on the, the, the story that gets you to that 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 two-word verse, Jesus wept. Martha had just run out the house and basically cussed him out. <laughs> <laughs> you had been here. If you had been here, my, my brother, brother would would be dead. My, yes. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, so. And it's that... like, I f- and I feel your pain. And I'm not going to jump to the next part of it where I get to be the hero. I'm going to sit in this pain with you.
0: Mm. That gives a whole new outlook to that. Um, what brings you peace? Mm. Peace. Mm-hmm.
1: Just peace, just calm. No, no drama, just calm. What brings you joy? My family. If you were a color,
0: what color would you be? Purple. <laughs> the color of royalty. Yes. If money weren't an option, where would you live?
1: Some island. I think Barbados. My husband had the opportunity to go there when he was a student. His pictures are so alive. And the culture just resonates off the, the, the photos that I just that just feels like that would be a place to just go and write and sit in the sun and just get seven shades of black.
0: What's one answer you prepare prepared to give to a question no one has asked you?
1: Oh, that's see it's supposed to be speed.. <laughs> <laughs> Death scares me.. Mm. I think because as you get older, and I had the same expectations of my elders, as people get older, you think they're preparing for that, that they're and even if they feel like they're going to heaven, that they're all good, they're ready to die. And I think um, the idea of not existing, that scares me. And I don't think we talk about it enough.
0: I can see that because it makes me think of Cicely Tyson. Three days before she died, her memoir had came out and she was on on the TV doing a whole interview circuit. I was like, she wasn't preparing to go nowhere.
1: Mm-mm.
0: Like she She was booked and busy and ready to do something. <laughs>
1: exactly. And you would think that if you've reached the in your 90s, that you're good, especially once your book came out. I mean, she should have just been ready for Jesus to swoop down and take her on home. But I don't think that was the case.
0: Me either. Yeah. And then in saying that, that leads us to our final question that you've kind of already touched on. But you say you're writing your legacy. So when you are no longer here. What would you want someone to write about that legacy that you've left behind?
1: Hmm. I just want people to say that she lived a full life. she didn't she didn't um, shortchange us on anything that she gave every bit that she had and been so. Thank you, Angela. That was beautiful. Oh, thank you. This was, oh, Lord, it was like sitting and talking to a girlfriend.
0: Thank <laughs> you. Big thank you to Angela Jackson Brown for being here on Black and Published today. Make sure you check out Angela's novel, When Stars Rain Down, out right now from HarperCollins. And if you're not following Angela, follow her on the socials. She's at Angela Jackson Brown Author. On Instagram and ad Jackson 68, the number 68 on Twitter. That's our show for the week. If you like this episode and want more Black and Published, go ahead and hit that subscribe button on your podcast platform of choice. While you're there, leave us a rating, a review, a comment. Let us know who you'd like to hear on the show next. You can also follow Black and Published at Black and Published on Instagram and Twitter. That's at B-L-K and Published. And if you want to keep up with me, head to my website, newrights.com. That's n e w w r i t e s dot com. Or you can follow me on the socials. I'm at Nikisha underscore Elise on Instagram and Twitter. That's our show for the week. I'll holler at y'all next time. Peace.